Buzz Buzz! In honor of the beekeeper in theaters now, what's a profession you least expect to be filled by a highly trained operative? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm just thinking about all the, like, uh, the friendliness and the cheerfulness of a Trader Joe's cashier, and I just think you'd have to keep a lot of secrets as a highly trained assassin, and uh, Trader Joe's cashiers can't keep a secret, so. <laughs> it's, it feels like there's a story in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Matt Patches. I'm gonna go with The Cleaner, as in Codename the cleaner. Everyone thinks of that movie all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know what his profession is. That I just the code. Is he name not the a cleaner? cleaner? He's not I a don't cleaner. No, he's an am- he has amnesia. So I oh. I'm not sure. I saw Codename the cleaner. I actually, don't even know Cedric who the star the entertainer. of it. Ah, uh, Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, <laughs> he's an entertainer, but he's also the cleaner. Also a cleaner. I'm David the Seven, and I'm also going with the movie shout out. But see if you can guess this one. Uh, it's a Tokyo public toilet cleaner that you do not suspect. Listen to our top tens to learn more. As a highly trained operative. So I I missed the question, but I've been trying to piece it together from your answers. And Mm -hmm. best I can guess, it's like, which movie character would you want to secretly be an assassin? What were you you doing 30 seconds ago? (laughs) I was reading a text about yellow jackets from a friend on a group chat. I don't know. I don't well, know. Listen, I don't know. Beekeeper. I didn't so choose. I didn't choose. It's true. It is beekeeper adjacent. I did not choose the subject of the text that was distracting me at that moment. Okay. What's a profession you least expect to be filled by a highly trained operative? Mmm. Mmm. Least expect. Wow. Yeah. This if is David's based on the question in advance. Imagine what this is going to I. Hmm. Hmm. I was like, I'm going to go. With, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with a hockey player. All right. I just have a hard time imagining that uh, those two worlds would have any overlap. And David goes with Michael Scarn. Is Michael Scarn a uh, hockey player? From Threat Level Midnight. Uh, He has to learn how to play hockey because the bomb's in the puck in the office. No? Wow. Your office knowledge is far more extensive than mine. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine. I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 459. It is the week of Wednesday, January 24th. That's the day that in 1848, James Marshall found gold in Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California, (laughs) kicking off the California gold rush. Which I've always heard of as, uh, in, you know, the 49ers. It's fascinating to me that it started in January 1948, but really didn't get uh, in gear until 49. News travels to travel slowly in uh, 1848. What, is, what did they find in California, Katie? Gold! Gold! Okay. Gold! <laughs> yes, oh, oh, I thought I'm you sorry. were doing your I'm gold sorry. member. No, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was doing a game. Just... Just prospectors, straight I was prospector. just wait, waiting just a for all of you to do reference. It. Speaking yeah. of the process, speaking of prospectors, I took Asa to see Toy Story two at the Nighthawk last weekend. Mm. Uh, what an adventure prospector that was! In that one. Yeah, that that whole the whole prospector plot thread with Woody being trapped up in that office room uh, does not work on four year olds. So he was way no. more into buzzing the gang, riding out to rescue him. Yeah, I mean, as long as you had good snacks, you're in good shape. Because he's not sure. a toy collector yet, he'll he'll oh. grow into it. Mm. Oh. Well, we're back. We have so much to talk about, and yet, and yet, we're <laughs> testing out our gold member impressions. Um, I know that we have a lot of reviews and emails to talk about. So, David, I'm throwing it to you. 
yeah, I mean, I guess the I guess we have not read any from the year of our Lord 2024. So we've read. Easy place to start. Uh, I think the first one, the first new one is, uh, yes, uh, your worst coworker. Oh, good. What a fun place to start. I can, <laughs> I can only imagine where this goes. Fun Police Lou, uh, which feels like an appropriate name, does give us five stars out of the kindness of their heart. I enjoy this, even though David comes off as your worst coworker who talks way too much, is incredibly dismissive of different opinions and interrupts you constantly. That may be true. The irony is that I, uh... So hate being in an office environment where anyone is talking at all that I started working from home voluntarily years ago um, and just not showing up to the office because this is I you talking, not the letter. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. We're already yeah, on the true. editorial. Sorry, I, okay. I failed to make that break. You um, interrupted the letter. Okay. Uh, I did. Not yes. an email. Uh, okay. But yeah, maybe that's just review. all that that pent up ta- not talking that I do all day long just comes out here. Uh, Micro Morath. Says, sorry I forgot to give you a shout-out, Patches, but a perfect excuse to follow up with a five-star review. This is Shruthi from the email, by the way. Plot twist. Yeah. That was from 2023 email. Patches displaying a phenomenal command of the podcast medium just clapped silently in appreciation for Shruthi. Chris Diggins, my cry for help. Hello, friends, family, and colleagues. My name is David Ehrlich, and no matter what I might say verbally on pod to convince you otherwise, I hate the Rangers, even though they <laughs> have the best jersey in hockey, objectively true. The New York Rangers, the team I have pretended to root for over the past couple of years, couple of years, <laughs> my friend, <laughs> is actually my least favorite team in the NHL. So Dave Seven, Patches, and Katie, please hold my sad, sweaty, cold little hands while I tell you that my real favorite hockey team is the Seattle Kraken. From Vince Dunn to Oliver Bjorkstrand, all I want in life is to give those brave, beautiful little boys in navy blue a sweet little kiss. Is it Nate? Um... Is Navy Blue, you're still talking about the Kraken? It's like a sea green. Uh, on the forehead and watch them win in the most Kraken fas- fashion possible. Complete, unrelenting domination. Okay. And before I finish reading this review, I have to, uh, sorry, I have to interject that the Rangers just beat the Kraken again, uh, even though the Rangers have not been doing a lot of winning recently. Uh, and before I finish reading this review that I wrote for my own podcast, sad, I know, to admit a truth I've been hiding deep down for a long time. I just want to go on the record and say that no matter how much I might try to deny it verbally, what I wrote on the iTunes app is how I really actually feel. Thank you for listening. Love, David. In parentheses, the Kraken David? Fan. Yeah, you know, the things I do on Ambien, I really, uh, I cannot be able to account for. Looks like um, the Kraken have like a teal, like letters and logo on their navy blue. Beautiful. Yeah, it's like a C, a C, I think of the Kraken as C green appropriately. Um, I do, uh, while my graphic designer wife does agree that the Rangers, fortunately for us, have by far the best jerseys, I'd say in all professional sports, but certainly in hockey. We are both fans of the Kraken tentacle with a little beady red eye inside of it. Uh, very cool. Do you know that Hans Zimmer wrote a song for the Seattle Kraken? An Why not? Pump-up song? Why not? <laughs> Man. I mean, one of his one of his uh, many underlings, which are cranked it out. Uh, yes. I'm my a lot. Asa is currently obsessed with watching the hockey highlights. He watches the hockey highlights in the morning while everyone's asleep, and I just hear him obsessively rewatching the same games, doing play-by-play for them, and like Artemi Panarin scores, and he just goes score. <laughs> People are gonna uh, be so worried cute. about your child. Uh, um, oh, another! Wow, I'm really on uh, on the brain tonight. Los Angela Cat says David being egregiously wrong. I've been listening since the Opkino days. I love the show, and I have an important correction to the latest episode where David said he was sure that Sam Esmail was a very nice man. Anyone yeah. who has heard his podcast appearances, including notably his appearances on The Watch, 
knows that is maybe the wrongest anyone has ever been on the show. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, can't say I'm terribly disappointed to uh, be told that I was wrong about that. But uh, You don't have to feel bad about not liking his movie. Yeah. Uh, Milwaukee Ryan says, ornithologist, philanthropist, philatelist. <sighs> I want to stop there, but... Uh, my my duty to our show means that I have to continue. Foxcatcher, especially post-Trump, is one of this young century's great mm. films. I guess that's mm. one opinion wow. to have, Milwaukee Ryan. Yep, Thank it you is. For that's it a good one. And finally, we have Richard Rules, spelled with a Z, if anyone is looking person up. A time capsule. I started listening as research for a comic book that's set in 2015. I just heard them talk about Age of Ultron and immediately felt seen when David suggested the game Every Time You Hear the Words Infinity Stones, Shoot Yourself in the Face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even if you win, you lose. Uh, I doubt that by the time I catch up on the present, they'll still be reading reviews at the top of the episodes. (laughs) Think again, my friend. But just in case, I'm leaving this as a time capsule. A time capsule within a time capsule, because that's the incredible value of this type of show. It gives a window into what people were actually saying in the moment. Trying to explain to a current fan of anything that people didn't always think the way the online discourse would have them believe is tough and often met with anger, as if knowing that Keanu Reeves uses a punchline stand-in for bad and dumb for years, or that Mark Hamill was so secondary to Harrison Ford that he could play David Spade's stalker as himself on Just Shoot Me uh, will rob them of some more pure truth cemented by marketing spin. Listening to the show feels like an anathema to all that, and I am delighted. Speaking of time capsules, this is me now speaking. Oh boy! I want to shout out a, a a film that is constantly on cable that's always been near and dear to my heart, despite me thinking it is more or less terrible. Is at uh, uh, Alex Proyas's Knowing, um, which mm-hmm. Roger Ebert famously and deliriously gave four stars. A movie about a time capsule being dug up that reveals that the all of life on Earth will end on my birthday, which I appreciated. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I, all of life is, doesn't end. Some of them go to. <laughs> Heaven or another yeah. planet? Where they go to the sky? In that movie? No, they had two kids, Adam and Eve style, uh, right. regenerate right. in another dimension somewhere. Um, so I suppose not all, all life on this Earth is, is great. Done. Anyway, Wait, did we finish this um, review? Yeah, we're done. That's we just plowed through all six of the new reviews we have oh, on God. iTunes wow, okay. or the podcast store. Not like we planned. That is that? Oh wait, no, not. <laughs> I would like David, to know David more was about what Yellow people. Jacket text. What people are learning about us? Uh, what lo- people learning about the past from us? Because I feel like it's—I have this whole wealth of like me talking about ten years of pop culture. I don't remember anything I said about anything from twenty fifteen. So I had to go back and listen. Worse. I can't imagine anything worse than being reminded by anything I've said last week on this show, let alone in twenty fifteen. Maybe you are. Well, we'll have to do another uh, flashback episode revisiting our hottest takes. Mm. Just do Foxcatcher again. Yeah, mm. back to back to Foxcatcher. <laughs> Foxcatcher three times. Uh, all right, Dave, we're gonna do all the emails. What? <laughs> Actually, I don't, we we do, I don't think we should do all the emails. I could uh, abbreviate some of these. Uh, there. Or we are, can hold them. We can hold them. Let's do two that I think we should. Otherwise, we're gonna forget what they're talking about. All uh, right. This one comes from Mark. It says, "Dear Fitware crew, I'm not writing to give any notes other than yes, David, you need a new microphone for several years now. Although I've been a huge fan since the start of the pandemic." When I made a concerted effort to find a few new podcasts, this was the one that stuck. I like how you take culture very seriously, but don't ever really try to knock each other's takes, but try to draw them out. I remember Patches being really irked by turning red and the others trying to help him through it. That was really lovely. Anyway, the main I think that might have been me who was really irked by turning red and you guys had to pull me through it. We sound alike. Anyway, the main reason I'm finally writing is that Katie mentioned she needs a fried rice recipe. And I've got one she will really like from Charles okay. Bam of the Slanted Door in San Francisco from the book Vietnamese Home Cooking. 
Sorry, it's not attaching normally and arriving as a big-ass photo with an email. I found the recipe to be really adaptable with leftovers, which you'll definitely want to get some bean paste or golden mountain seasoning to add at the end, which makes a massive difference. Enjoy, and thanks for the great podcast. And wow. I'm now forwarding this recipe over to Katie Rich. So wow. she can see I if she wants to give it a try. Thrilled. <laughs> so that comes from uh, Katie's New Year's resolution to make some... Uh, Good fried rice. Like, have a good back pocket fried rice recipe. I can just go back to again and again. And one more. Uh, this one is from Carson, and his subject is who you are. Hey there, Carson here. Not sure if you have my last name, because I'm not sure which of my three emails I'm sending this from. Please don't attack me if my last name is here. It is. I don't know what that means, though, Carson. You have a perfectly fine last name. First off, compulsory love the show comment. All of your personalities mesh so well together, and it's easy, and it's so fun to hear you all put into words Many of the things that I think about and feel about movies, pop, culture, but don't have the words to say. Now on to my main point. I have no idea what any of you look like. And at this point, I'm too afraid to look because I have people I've decided you look like in my head. And whichever, whenever one of you speaks, I only see them. Katie Rich, you are Darcy Carden, specifically Ooh. as Janet from The Good Place. I'll David Ehrlich, uh, you are Andy Buckley, specifically as David Wallace from The Office. Matt Patches, you are Char- uh, no, no, Those things are, but okay, thank you. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a handsome man. He's a little older than us, but yeah, just take mm. it. Yeah, okay. Matt Patches, you are Charlie Day, specifically from when he's standing in front of that board with all the red strings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dave, BJ Novak, no specific show slash moment, just BJ Novak in general. I would, uh, I'll take that. That's fine. You referenced The Office before you even yeah, did The Office twice. I did. Uh, thanks for everything, Carson. Uh, so those are our two emails. We also got an email from Lori about uh, using our logo. Lori, sorry we didn't get back to you while we took a lot of time <laughs> without reading uh, emails or reviews. And uh, we have at least two more. So if you can, if you want to, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review in the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, you are safe next week from hearing about mobile gaming because we banked some emails. Uh, but other than that, on with the show. You the calling man, you send you up. Reason calling nine and nine twos up. All right. I am not a reality TV person generally as a rule. I kind of feel like I don't have time for it. Like there's so many seasons of God knows what Love Isle under the Bachelor. And I realize I, uh, I don't know, I, I can do a lot of stupid things, but that's not it. But I made an exception last year for The Traitors, the Peacock show hosted by Alan Cumming about a bunch of people in a castle who uh, have to scheme against each other. I think it works similar in format to Big Brother and Survivor. Again, I don't watch those shows. I don't really know. Um, the first season had a bunch, had half of the cast was alums of shows like that in Real Housewives and Summer House and God knows what other reality TV nonsense. Um, and half of them regular people. And now it is back for a second season on Peacock, once again hosted by Alan Cumming. It's all reality stars. And again, I don't watch other reality shows. I go into this with a complete lack of knowledge and then text my friends who watch Survivor and I'm just like, okay, what do we think of Parvati? What's her deal? Um, and it's kind of like a like a Rosetta Stone for me understanding modern reality Wait, TV. Is, Par- is Parvati hot? Like I'm really I've been thinking about this a lot. I learned that when she was on Survivor, like in the late 2000s, her entire strategy was to get guys to uh, think that she was hot and let down their Man, defenses and then vote them off the is, island. I, I which would, is I would, genius. Yeah, immediately, I was like, as soon as I was, I I think uh, I'm kind of into Parvati. I gotta say, I and mean, as soon as they made her a the traitor. Island. 
So this is the well, trailer. Hang on, hang on, like, hang on, oh. hang on. We're not going to spoil the season right. of the traders like, that that's is like airing season, right now. That's like uh, the second episode. Whatever. Okay. Um, so David mentioned that we should talk about the traders, and I was thrilled. And then David also mentioned that the traders UK was where it's at. Uh, I guess there's been two seasons. Only the first one is on Peacock. So that is the one I'm halfway through and do not want to spoil for myself or anybody else. But David, you are so right. The Traders UK is incredible. And it's so mm, different from American there. Traders. Oh, really? Okay. Because, I've only so, watched I mean, UK. Well, okay. So it is the it is so similar. Like the challenges are exactly the same. It's in the same castle, which makes it very surreal that you're watching people. And you're like, wait, who did it's I see the in the billiard room and have this conversation? They even have they, to like they just name sheep it, or whatever on the American version. That feels very British. They do I don't it, think the sheep are on the American okay. version, actually. It's the same exact castle. They just do it. It's the same production companies. They do it all over again just to it's, save money. It's like going um, to summer camp, and then the next yeah. week they roll in a new campers and have the same counselors doing but the same thing. As Katie will elaborate for us, uh, it provides a really fascinating contrast. It is. So it the UK similar. traders is nothing but regular people. So all of them are kind of horrified well, at the idea of... What do you mean? Well, there's like, I'm a personality. Like, oh, that, sure. That's but their, it's, or I'm a magician. There's like... But, but it's like, like, I was on, they seem... I, it's they not like not I won Survivor. Stars. They're yes. not professional reality stars. And the idea of being a traitor yes. is so horrifying to them. You get to a point <laughs> now after the season where one of them is offered to become a traitor and they're like, no, I really couldn't do well, it. Well, and, let's quickly explain what the game is, which is basically a giant reality show version of Mafia. Okay, yes, so exactly. when we're talking yes. about traitors. We're talking about a group of people who some are good, faithful people and some who are traitors. And it is Mafia and they're trying to suss each other out and murder. The traitors get to murder someone each week, if I'm following correctly, uh, a few episodes in here. And yeah, it's and the, played technically, like you would they around murder the, someone the each night. Um, okay. Sure. They, yeah, but, it but is the traders don't do anything to make themselves evident as traders other than doing these murders, which happened in, in the night. So what's funny is they're all sitting around being like, I think he's a traitor because he looked at me weird when I asked him this one question. They're trying to eliminate the traders based on no evidence whatsoever. And it makes for this incredible psychological experience where they go off on all these bad tangents and like turn on each other over and over and again. And super emotional, I guess, because in like two hours that I've watched, they're just having breakdowns and <laughs> screaming profanity because it's British television. And I but can't believe how much crying that there is on the show that people the, are like, the, the you lied to me or I don't know what to is, feel. Like, it's so emotional. There, there might be a cultural disconnect there as well. I mean, the American one does get emotional and right towards the end of the first season but there's so much more on the line uh in the british version where like not only do the contestants by and large need the money more than the american contestants like that this is not their job they're not just going to be on another sure. reality tv show later um but it, i mean because of that there takes on eventually a shakespearean element that the season finale which i will i couldn't spoil if i try because i can't remember it other than like the, the broad outline of it because uh, i've seen like four seasons of the trader since um, and there's been a year, but the uh, the season finale of season one of Traders UK left me just like sobbing on my television. It is so intense. Um, and and whereas the American and the Australian ones are more, their finales are sort of more uh, exciting for how cutthroat they are. I don't think it's all about the money, though. I think they're not used to the idea of being in a group of people oh, and yeah. having one of them turn on you. Like they're not prepared yeah. for the really cutthroat inherent nature of reality television even though some of them are like a you know no i think you're exactly whatever. right you're um, exactly and so right. you and so you feel for them but it's also really funny when one of them says to the camera like 
I don't like it when people lie to me. It's yeah, like, why are, are you on a show called The, on the UK On the UK <laughs> s- season one, there's a BMX biker who's 23 years old. <laughs> he's so, and yeah. you feel like he just woke up from a coma because he's acting like a child. He's like, how could they lie to me? Like, Sir, where are you? You are in a castle playing gay group games. A game. But that's what's so interesting about it is that like, there is a sort of cognitive dissonance that they're all experiencing because they know that the game they are playing requires them to lie right. to each other. It could also and be yet, an act too, like everyone it, is playing, right? Right, and you can't help but be personal when you start defending yourself and someone is saying that you're suspect uh, because of such and such and you did this and in some cases you're accused of something that you know objectively isn't true because like, let's say I'm a faithful and someone is just like, I know that you looked that way or had that reaction or were too excited at breakfast. And you're like, motherfucker, I am a faithful. I don't know what to tell you. That's um, a good point. I but, feel like I've been, I've drank a little too much, played a game of mafia around the table and actually gotten this loud and upset and, yeah. and taking it too personally That's, that people that, are accusing when you, me. Oh, David's like when get, this David's is all you're doing in. all day long and there's no yeah. escape from it. You don't have your phone. Yeah. I mean, you can only imagine how intense They've all become best friends, uh, even though they've been there for two days. I, I want to ask David some stuff. First of all, I hadn't seen any of the traders until two days ago. Now I'm almost done with season one of the UK traders. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> and um, uh, trader pilled. D- don't don't say that yet because this isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, it takes so long to get interesting. So let me ask you, David. I, I understand ultimately what makes uh, the show interesting, especially when it's normal people you know, coming up with these uh, schemes and whatnot and having these emotional showdowns. But looking at it as a reality TV show, what makes this more interesting than playing Mafia with your friends for you? Well, I don't know if it is more interesting than playing Mafia with my friends for me. It is an extension of playing Mafia with my friends, which is an experience I love and miss and have never gotten to play. Actually, when we played it on Zoom over the course of a week during uh, the pandemic, that was closest. Uh, oh, why were you doing that? That seemed yeah. very complicated. And I was, oh, I was so happy. It was so much fun, and it was like something that we would do virtually all day long. Um, you know, pun sort of intended. And it would kind of take over your life because there was nothing else going on, and it was, uh, it was wonderful. Um, and this experience, like that experience, is the closest analog to the traders. But I love the traders so much because it. It's like the idealized version of a mafia game. Like I have never seen a reality show and I've, I've fallen in love with my rea- fair reality, fair number of reality shows over the years, but I've never seen one that I've been so desperately, desperately uh, determined to be on one day. If, <laughs> if the American version will ever allow for normies. Do you think to you'd be, be good it. at it? I am very good at mafia. I don't know if that would translate to being good at mafia on television. Um, but I, uh, you know, and being immersed in it, but, um, yeah, I think I, I think I understand the game well enough. To What's succeed, your mafia but... tactics? Let me pivot well, here for one second. Do you go stone faced or do you go overly emotional, immediately accusatory? So the like, only, what, what the you, only what period of the game that you can sort of have a sort of broad tactic for that apply applies to a generic game is over the first, let's say like two days of a season of the traders. And in all but one of the seasons I've seen, the traders are the people who are not talking at the round table over the first two or three nights. If someone is talking at the round table over the first two or three nights, 
they are faithful. And of course, they are talking to lob accusations at someone else who is invariably also a faithful, and they are just picking <laughs> each other off. But if the traders, it completely behooves them to be quiet and just take things in and mm -hmm. push people in other directions over the first few days. On season two of the Australian Traders, which is a really interesting mishmash of the two, um, season two has a couple reality stars, but they're not really billed as such. Um, and uh, still a number of really fascinating regular people. Uh, and it is like, you know, kind of rundown hotel and it's like extra ruthless. Season one of Australia is so ruthless. Uh, but there's this guy on there who reminds me of the caterer from Love Actually, like a more handsome version of the caterer from Love Actually. The one who goes and hooks up with Denise Richards. His name's Colin. Yes, of course. Um, and he, his strategy, even though he's a traitor, is episode two. He is going to go so far out of his way to be in the spotlight and throw one of his fellow traitors under the bus so that people immediately think of him and burn him into their brains as a traitor hunter. Uh, wow. And because they're like, no one in their right mind would go after a fellow trader on night two of the show. Um, and I'm currently in the process of watching it spectacularly blow up in his face. But it's uh, we'll see how what happens there. It should be um, noted for people who have never seen any of this that. And something I like about the show is that they tell you who the traitors are, right? Yes. Like we, we, they're the traitors are, it's very clear who they are. They're talking to camera just like the, the faithful are in the kind of cutaways. Uh, so we I watch was a them big meet fan. in the turret with their cloaks on at night. <laughs> right? yeah. Yes. There's a whole ritual. Uh, I was a big fan of The Mole. I don't know if you guys ever watched yes, that ABC show. Yes, I was thinking about the, the Mole. Day. And Netflix recently revived The Mole in a pretty good way, in a more like, dumb reality show of modern era way but it's still the mole you know there's someone who's infiltrated this group you're winning prize money but you don't know who it is so everyone is just anxious the whole time and there's but on really the mole, no way they're to trying tell. to undermine the group so there's like clues Correct. if they're you're paying to attention to patches to patches point you know i was just reading an interview with the uh the guy who brought the traders from uh the dutch version and trans uh, where it was a big success for a number of years to the uk and he was saying the reason that nobody was buying his pitch for so long is because they didn't think an audience would care about a show where they tell you who the traitors are rather than making it a mystery. And to Dave's point, I think why that is so successful with the traitors is that it the, becomes the rare reality show where things actually get more interesting as it goes along as opposed to less. And, like the and tension you can root for either team. The There's no good team and the right. bad one. Like you, but the yeah. yeah, I mean, I, just, I think like a lot of reality shows maybe less like competitive reality shows and they give like my below decks or whatnot. They just end at an arbitrary point. There's not really an arc. It doesn't really build towards anything. You're waiting for like a dramatic iron. I don't know. Like this, this is, uh, or, or not, you're waiting to suspense. It's not as fulfilling. I would say as a dramatic irony. Um, and just sort of being able to understand the full story as it plays out as it is in this format. Uh, but Man, it is like I just find it to be so riveting and complex. All these personalities. I think it's an enormous shame thing, to our country oh, that the United States yeah. has fucked up. It's such a cell phone. So we didn't really talk about this. What yeah. do you think is the fundamental difference between the U.S. version, which is now all reality show yeah. starts, which I could imagine is could still be good because all of these people are big fakes, right? They live to play the camera. I'm having a great time with it. Right? It's, it's, so it's, they listen, should be kind of good at this. It's definitely a ton of fun. It's head and shoulders above. 99% of the reality stuff out there, you will get the general idea. But, you know, the big problem is that you, as Katie eloquently surmised earlier, I mean, you just don't have that raw emotionality you bring to it. Everything feels a little bit performative and for show. But I also think that it 
the air is sort of out of the tire from the moment it starts because everybody comes in with preconceptions that are not dramatically interesting. It's not interesting to be like, oh, she's on Housewives or was on Housewives. And so like she is good at backstabbing and we're going to have clicks in season two. They immediately break up into clicks, uh, which is not helpful. I mean, like one of the traders is in a click. And so maybe down the line, we'll use that to. But also when someone tries to break up the click, like it backfires. I I, I don't know. They all think that they are experts at this. All of them are like, I've been in this world. I know what I'm doing. And so then you watch them fail and it's really funny. Like I get a lot of shot out of this that maybe is a less visible for other people. I I would say the the season one finale of the U.S. and I've only seen because the season ones are the only seasons that have played out in full at the time we're recording. Uh, Season one finale of the U.S. was like a great popcorn it's, movie it's incredible and and season one finale of of um UK. the traders uk was like all the strangers <laughs> it was like it was like you know it was like the iron claw but 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 nice i mean i was like really a deeply emotional experience I, i'm interested to get there but i also see what the u.s is doing and tweaking the formula because my well, they're not tweaking it. The, the original show is all celebrities also in in uh the then bringing it back to the formula because um yeah the show needs time for you to uh pick favorites and do stuff like that i had a little bit of a problem uh watching the first three episodes uh in successfully picking who was going to be uh, eliminated and murdered based on the edit they got in the episode i was watching maybe Mm -hmm. that's just me watching too much reality tv or maybe they've gotten better at editing traders but in order to like sink into this show, really, you are required to, you know, get some of the chaff out and uh, flo- uh, focus in on your your favorites, whether they be traitors or faithful, and see how they navigate things. So it really gets down to character, uh, and that's when I think it really gets good. But it's long enough, and the group is big enough, and there are enough reality TV show twists about you know people coming and going that I I really feel like. Traders need some gas right at the beginning uh, mm. to be an interesting show. How do you feel about it now where you're at? I I get it uh, when the real people uh, start playing real in, in, in UK uh, season one. Uh, it's been very interesting to see them sort of develop and their reactions that I would expect them to have. They have completely different uh, justifications for those reactions. So that sort of stuff is fun. That's fun. We're seeing real people. We're seeing characters. I just there's there's so much of each episode that is like build up and challenges. I don't give a shit about to increase the plot, the the pot. Uh, and really, I just want them all to be sitting down and accusing each other uh, all day. So, the, yeah, I, I, it's more of a format I, thing, I agree I think. with that. The challenges are my least favorite part. I will say that in season two, they find a way to make the challenges more um, not just interesting, but more part of the plot rather than sort of extraneous to it. Yeah. Uh, and the Australian version is broken up into two teams, a red and a blue team. And that way, one of the teams wins and the winning team is the only team that gets to go into the armory where one of them whose identity they don't disclose wins a shield. And yeah. so that changes the math of uh who is going to vote for whom at the table but it still means the challenges aren't as exciting but in season two of the uk they do find a way to end season and season two of the american one they find a way to make the challenges a little bit more plot centric that's good but yeah i i I see what it's going for and when it gets there it's great i just wish it took 
fast. I wish it got there faster. Mm. Um, maybe maybe the pool's too big. You know what? Maybe it's that. Mm. Um, because then you're focused more on the reality TV shenanigans. It's like a Trader 2K season one, like the first woman to go is like the woman who's just like, I just want to buy a new hand. Lost my hand, but uh. like a new hand. And then she's like out. And I'm like, yeah, you picked a dramatic character that had a very easy reason that you could kind of build a fifth of an episode around her. And then she's out. Um, yeah. I think I would, I would like to get down to the characters and the backstabbing uh, a little it's, bit faster. Listening to you talk, I realized just like the, the things that a lay person does not pick up. Like, you know, I, a lay person like myself as opposed to you who's worked in reality TV. Uh, like there in season two of the traders, there's a guy who has, uh, well, I'd actually don't want to say what he has, but like, there's clearly a backstory that is alluded to and they don't mention it. And it isn't until the ninth episode when he's still on the show, like seven episodes later. Of which when season? Which, fi- which edition this is, are we talking I, about? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. I don't want to say anything more. But like that he finally is given a chance in one of his testimonials to talk about his backstory. And I realize now listening to Dave talk that, of course, you know, they had the footage for the entire season when they said about editing the series and knew that he was still going to be in it in season in the, in the ninth episode and so that they could bury that germ uh and i suppose if you are really attuned to reality tv when you feel like oh there's backstory here that i'm not getting it is a clue that that person is going to stick around for nine more episodes anyway mm. interesting i mean there, there's <coughs> stuff like that it's mostly structural i just i i see the appeal um and actually i think everybody's using it perfectly nobody like David's by far the most into traders, but I, I don't ever doubt that David's getting actual work done. So like this is this is a good this is the good type of reality TV. This isn't uh misery porn. This is a competition with at least in the UK, real people. And even if it's not reality shows, reality shows people have to compete. I had to watch a little bit of uh Traders US season two. Uh, because I watched the trailer and I was like, oh my God, is that Jess Brillhart? Who used to be like one of my friends. <laughs> and she was on a, a very one season reality show called On the Lot back in like 2000. You and I would have discussed if Jess Brillhart were on season two of The Traders, I promise I, you. I assume, but I don't I, I knew you were <laughs> watching a different season from a different country at the time. So I was like, oh, so I had to check it out. Uh, but no, it's some some woman well, from like Big just Brother so UK. so our, our listeners know, season, season, both season of The American Traders are on Peacock. Season one of The Traders UK and season one of The Traders Australia, which to all my co-hosts, I cannot recommend highly enough. I, I think might, it is definitely the, I might the be second heading best. Down that road. My God. It's the second best Traders, <laughs> but it's so good. You'll, Katie, you will love the host. This guy named Roger. I think he's, he must be a celebrity in Australia. Um, I don't know who he is, but he's great. Um, I have been using a VPN to stream <laughs> <coughs> season two, which is released Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, of Traders UK, and I, I watched it live as it aired today on the BBC. It ends this Friday. Um, it has already been renewed for season three. Australia is sort of in the balance. I've been watching Australia season two, also on a VPN, and a, a mess of really fun Australian commercials that I get to watch with it. Uh, <laughs> oh, but Lord. get get Trader Pilled, everybody. The future reality TV, God willing. <laughs> Thank you.
We're going to talk about the Oscars for a little bit. We promise not too long. I have done a little Goldman episode talking about the Oscar nominations in much more detail, but it was a delayed a day because I was uh, walking out of work on the day of the Oscar nominations <laughs> with the rest Ooh. of the Funny Nass Union. That was um, a strange time. It was weird to go through the Oscar nominations and then just kind of sit around. I watched Society of the Snow, which got two nominations. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime in the future. Ooh. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of Oscar takes and then I like, I let them all out on a much uh, longer discussion of podcast, but we're going to do one thing we liked and one thing we didn't like. Right. Is that the idea? Yeah. 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 Cool. Patches, you go first. The TLDR version of your episode of Little Gold Men. Sure. That's what you can always count on fighting in the war. <laughs> um, what was my, what was the good, uh, what was my good one? I think my good one was that May, December got at least one nomination. Ooh. I just feel like it totally got shafted. Maybe that's my negative too, but uh, they uh, May December got an original screenplay nomination and I was relieved because I really thought it might just get nothing. So I wasn't surprised and I don't think anyone necessarily got snubbed. The Charles Melton thing, I guess I just thought there was momentum there, but it didn't quite happen. I, I've seen a lot of people whispering that actors don't like this movie because they take it personally. Um I can believe that narrative, mm -hmm. but uh, glad that it snuck in there to see it represented. Uh, and the uh, the one that I'm frowning a little bit on is uh, Diane Warren once again coming back for Flamin' Hot. Uh, <laughs> she gets song, I guess. I guess there's I a think song we have movie. to make peace. We have to make peace with it now. I mean, I, just, I, this has been a crucible for me for years, and I think we all just have to when come they, to terms. When they read the nomination, the room went wild. Like yeah, she had like cheering. a real cheering squad in there. Diane Warren, um, because I thought, oh god, now I'm blanking. I have a mental. Uh, what what song was I before the podcast saying how much I wanted to see in this? Oh, Wonka! Uh, Wonka Where's the song? Wonka representation Wonka? here? <laughs> Wonka has a whole soundtrack of great original songs, but Diane Warren's flaming hot song. I'm sure it's okay. Got in. I don't know. Seems seems wrong. That's my take. Mm. Uh, I'll go next. Um. Best thing, uh, hello, Oscar-nominated Godzilla movie. Yeah. Just very excited to ever. see that happen. Is that first one right? ever? Yeah. It's the first time it's been, you know, a long, a long dark history of Godzilla movies uh, being treated as crap. And to be fair, a lot of them are, and that's why we love them. But I was very happy to see it uh, get a visual effects nomination. Uh, I hope, I, I'm not really expecting it to win. It's up against some tough stuff and some tough technology, but I am hoping this cracks open a little bit of the question of just how they made it for that budget is if you ask uh, visual effects Reddit, uh, probably bad working conditions, but the video, they all look incredibly happy. So let's find out. Let's do some, uh, uh, some, <laughs> yeah, the camera was not allowed to pan over to the rest of the office. There, it was but, like, uh, it was chained up. Um, yeah. So uh, that I think would be, uh, is going to be fun. I'm thrilled with what Godzilla minus one managed to do in theaters. Uh, considering I thought it would be one week and gone. Uh, so that's great. Um, the thing that I, my boo, uh, my jeer, if you will, um, is I, I, Netflix. I don't want to watch Nyad. I'm sure it's fine. You but, like, have a more, a more fun time with Nyad than you think. Jodie Foster. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, we're doing, we're, we're doing best Jodie Foster uh, movie this week on Trial by Content. So Ooh, I've fun. been watching a lot of Jodie Foster movies, which has been great. Uh, but I think especially with some of the great performances uh, by actress and supporting actresses this year uh, that I would have liked to see at least represented, even if they wouldn't be competitive, uh, the Nyad just sort of feels like packing, packing the categories a little bit with something that I, I'm 
uninterested in. So maybe it's very good. I'm just uninterested in it. That's fair. I mean, someone tweeted something to the effect of like, don't think of Night as a sports movie. Think of it as like a cranky lesbian hangout movie, which is really what a lot of it is. And uh, that might. I haven't thought about it at all. Um, (laughs) It's not like the most lingering of the nominees. I'll give you that. Dave Gonzalez says, nay, Yeah. The other day, Java asked me if I'd washed out that Nyad water bottle yet. And I said, no. And I washed it out. And so now maybe I'll use it. But that's the most I thought of Nyad. My Nyad water bottle, uh, A+. I'm thrilled with my Nyad water bottle. Oh, oh, maybe Uh, I should switch it up. Which is why I voted for it for 10 (laughs) Academy Awards. (laughs) I don't don't, don't, vote on the Oscars. (laughs) David. Cheer and cheer. Uh, I do want to point out Diane Warren. I feel like it's it's telling that she has what, 13 nominations and zero 15, wins. I think 15. 15 now. And they had to give her an honorary Oscar, which we hoped would be sort of the end of it. Um, well, the problem is not. she didn't win for her like legitimate bangers like How Do I Live and Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now in the 80s and mm-hmm. 90s. And now she's like really cranking them out and keeps getting nominated. But like her. Uh, it's like a cottage industry for her. I mean, this I is wish she could write another banger. Um, but uh, yeah, at this point, it seems like that is probably not going to happen. Um, anyway, uh, I think that my yay is going to be in the best sound category. Um, where Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 finally gets the Mission Impossible series on the board, which matters less to me than just how That's fucking never rocked. happened? That's a first? It has never happened, but wow. I just how fucking rocked I was by the sound of Mission Impossible seeing that shit in Dolby over the summer. Uh, it was not sense around, it was not 4DX, but my chair was uh, yes. rumbling every creak of that train I could feel through my bones. It wasn't just a matter of volume, it was an experience that had been like so masterfully designed to work you over and just completely... Yeah, get get the entire body going, and I loved every bit of it, and I was glad to see that rewarded. Um, I will take my wins where I can get them. Um, I also just want to give a quick shout out to the documentary branch for not giving in to the temptation to just throw a bunch of celebrity docs into the mix. They picked a yeah. really interesting selection of like relatively challenging films from around the world. I think it's good for the health of documentary filmmaking in general. <laughs> um, and obviously, my Jeer is, uh, I mean, the, the entire, and this goes along with the Diane Warren thing, the entire music branch of the Academy's got to go. It's got to be, like, I mean, executed. I mean, like, <laughs> Oh, uh, um, I see where, I know where we're the, headed with uh, um, But this category, both the, I mean, both the sound, the score and the song categories have just been in giant yeah. embarrassments for years on end. And this is as bad as it gets. Um, Joe Hisaishi whose Boy in the Heron score is one of the best of the century, um, has never been nominated for an Oscar, and is one of our great composers, <clears throat> snubbed completely for a nomination uh, in favor of John Williams basically recycling Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny to get his like, 60th nomination. Laura Cartman, uh, whose work I'm not familiar with, she's very talented, hope we'll be hearing more from her in the future. Pretty forgettable work on American fiction, and really feel like that is a movie where really any of the technical bona fides... Uh, I'm measuring up. Um, can't really argue with Jerskin Fendricks, Ludwig Gorenson, who is such a favorite with this body, um, and Robbie Robertson, um, R.I.P. Yeah, but I was about to say, please I do would, not speak ill of the dead, specifically no, the dead. But Robbie I, uh, I would still pick Joe Asaishi's score over any of them in a heartbeat. Uh, and it is like such a scandal to me that he wasn't even nominated. Uh, everybody in this category should be embarrassed and ashamed of themselves, um, should send me just money as compensation for my trauma. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I have to say about that. 
I'll try to go quick. Uh, my cheer is kind of a petty one, but I can I can say it more freely here than on other podcasts. Is that the last minute push for origin didn't go anywhere? That movie is not very good, and I really uh, I I would have had nothing against Anjanou Ellis uh, getting a nomination in Best Actress. I think she's really good in it, but that movie is bonkers. Did any of you guys, David? You I must was thinking we should origin. actually see it and we should talk about it. I mean, I, I, I would we welcome it because it has some like some great scenes, and then some of the worst scenes I saw in a movie last year, all in the same package <laughs> that like left many excited. people like crying by the end of it, kind of angrily, like knowing that they had been oh, like taken on this ride they didn't want to go on, um, and yet they were crying anyway. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I, Origin had no place in what is a, really the best best picture lineup we've had in over a decade, and uh, good for that. Um, I guess I will be mad, and a minor mad, because I think these are mostly good nominations. I feel like Killers of the Flower Moon really belonged to Best Adapted Screenplay. It's an impressive feat of adaptation of that book. It's very different from how the book is, but not different in the way that like Jonathan Glazer took the title, The Zone of Interest, and the setting of Auschwitz, and basically made it something completely different. Um, so not to say that it's not adapted, but just like as a work of adaptation, it's less interesting to me. That would have been my pick. Have you guys seen the... I've seen this rumor floating around. I've seen people chattering about this. And I feel like I can say it out loud because I've seen it said in public, <laughs> which is that Paul Thomas Anderson completely rewrote Killers of the Flower Moon. I have I, no evidence I for this. I saw that on Twitter. I, that was the... Today is the but first I have I had now ever seen heard of it. it. I've heard this from multiple people. I have seen it in the wild on social media. I think the reality of the situation... I mean, I'm what like, happened is what? that Charles, Charles Bromesco tweeted about it, something he had like, heard at a bar... And but I have Jordan, heard other people. The Jordan Rumi Brigade. Jordan Rumi was the least, you know, up there with the insiders. Some of the least credible people in the business uh, ran with it, um, sourcing Charles Romesco's tweet. Chef Wells picks it up and so on. I, I think. I'm saying divorce from that. No, they've like, looked into it and that there's been line. like. They've been like, ah, I think the reality of the situation, if there is any reality to the situation, is that. Um, PTA may have done like some light doctoring work on the script, and I believe that greatly. I mean, which is common. PTA um, also and, uh, hosted the uh, Scorsese for the DGA, so I thought I'm like right, they, and, they must be tighter than I thought. Leo is going to be in the new movie. There's something. There is a relationship there. Yeah, I sure. Thought, but and but you know, did he sense. do a you know ground up rewrite? No, I don't think so. Um, so I think it's probably been overstated, but I think PTA's hands are on a lot of Still, movies. According to just Corky love a little Romano. Goss. I don't know. Corky I, 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 I know. lit up. Chris Catan will tell you. I've got to find my fucking cough drops. I will be right back. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the, the, the segment. The segment ended before that, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Despite not getting any Oscar nominations this week, we all united to talk about a movie that was technically released last year and eligible for our top tens, but some of us didn't get around to seeing it, a la me, uh, until this last weekend. It is All of Us Strangers. It is also adapted uh, from a book. It is uh, directed and uh, adapted to the screen by Andrew Haig. And uh, stars Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal as two gentlemen who are the only occupants of a new high-rise tower in London. Uh, after a very early test fire alarm, they run across each other. Uh, but uh, Andrew Scott's character is a little too sheepish, and Paul Mescal's character is a little too drunk. 
luckily they have time to catch up as Andrew Scott is also taking a train into the past mm. to talk to his parents who both died in a car crash when he was around 12. But here in this film, he's able to, as an adult, talk to them and work through some things with his past and with his parents. I was, I enjoyed this movie, but I think it might have been slightly overhyped uh. and, and or just not directed at me whatsoever. <laughs> um, I'd rather you say that than big overhyped. Grown. I mean, I, maybe not overhyped, uh, maybe just not necessarily uh, directed at me. I, um, I don't know. I don't even know if this is something to be selfish about or if it's, it makes me selfish or if it's just true. That like I, I think I have a good grasp of my parents and I'm in pretty constant contact with them. So this and uh, I've uh, never had to come out or keep a secret from my parents about my overall identity. So uh, things that, you know, I could relate to in this movie because everybody could relate to it. You know, like being made fun at school and thinking your father doesn't like really see that. I have since processed that trauma. Um, uh, this one was more interesting to me once I realized what was going on, that he is a screenwriter. And I'm like, man... My screenplays would be so much better if I could just time travel back and talk to subjects I was writing about. Um, uh, so I think <laughs> I think I might have missed the point of this one, despite some fantastic performances by Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal and uh, Claire Foy. Jamie Bell, also good. But those three are going to oh, be my standout. Missed the point? Really? Jamie Bell well, is... I feel like is, you got the point. I, I think I got I also, the point. Uh, I feel like I, can, I, I, I cannot miss let you leave Jamie Bell hanging like that. He is astonishing. Jamie good Bell is good movie. in this movie. I feel like I missed the point from a completely se separate angle, which was the like, I cannot connect. I live in my lonely apartment and I cannot have a conversation with anybody and I'm disconnected from the world. Like that fundamentally, I know that that is a thing that exists in the world, but it does not like ring any bell within my soul whatsoever. And like, I also have a good relationship with my parents like that part of it was separate but i felt like the movie hit me at a remove in this way where it's like oh well we all know what it's like to like not leave your apartment and not feel like you can have a conversation with someone i'm like i just don't and i don't know that it got me to a place where i really could despite as dave was saying really good performances so it's interesting that we both bounced off kind of like the two twin threads of this movie in different ways yeah you guys are not nearly damaged enough to appreciate fine cinema <laughs> I mean, um, uh, that, that might be true, but should we be? Should that be a requirement? I'm damaged no, enough to appreciate Foxcatchers. Isn't that good enough for you? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a silver lining. Uh, <laughs> is being able to just get utterly wrecked by a movie like this. Um, I wouldn't say in Dave's characterization of it going back in time. I mean, I, I just don't want to put the wrong idea in people's heads. This movie takes place in a sort of phantasmagorical. Sure. Space, a word that I am made fun of for overusing either on this podcast or elsewhere, a liminal space, if you will, um, where nothing, there is no now, like nothing is real or unreal. It's all sort of on this shared plane of existence. And so I think of the what we're seeing less as somebody going back in time and more as a screenwriter, a la a Quentin Tarantino, like really dialoguing with their characters, listening to their characters, letting their characters have a life of their own as they write them. Because the pretense for the whole story that we see is that for all we know, we could just be watching the script that he's writing. This could just be his own sort of mental wa uh, walkabout in his head as he is doing this sort of internal introspection of what he's doing. But I mentioned Tarantino because Tarantino very famously sort of has his, imagines his characters. He's just like fully fleshed 
people who speak to him and tell him what they should say. And he is really following them as they go. And I think if, if you know, this movie and the way that it works fits that experience more than it does the sort of conventional time travel narrative, just to set proper expectations. Sure. Um, it's, it's really someone talking to their own characters in their head and then going back in time. Uh, um, but, yeah. And I know he, I mean, Katie, to your point, like he's, he's isolated in the way Andrew Haig films it. He's at the very top of this high rise. I was astounded. I don't know if people know how Haig shot this movie, but did he shoot it in a real building or is it like green? No, the I building thought, is a, I thought, the building's a studio. Okay, because it looks astonishing. But, like out the window is almost surreally beautiful, and inside he's just trapped. And like I just thought, all the vistas out of his window were so perfectly. It's such a beautiful looking movie from Janie D. Ramsey, well, the cinematographer. Just like the lighting is so beautiful and perfect and dreamy. To your point, David, like it's not reality. I don't think it ever purports to be, and and that's part of the beauty of it. That he, yeah, walkabout is a great description i i find the kind of solitary nature of of his experience katie i'm thinking about you i'm like you're not connecting with this movie how, how what was the longest you've ever were ever single uh that was my huh. big question because yeah. i feel like if you're not alone just like wondering where your life is going mm. even when people are around but you I, I when you're less, single for a certain amount of time like it's very it's isolating less being, it's less about and, and i was being glib earlier i mean it's less about being single or having dead parents whatever the case might be than it is about feeling sort of locked into yourself and and emotionally isolated from the world and withholding uh because this is a character who um has never allowed himself to love someone because he's never really allowed himself or been in a position where he's felt like he was allowed to receive love because the only source of love he had in his life was very complicated when he was young and it was so tragically taken away from him before he was really able to finish this process of becoming and it sort of stunted that growth um, that's why there is this sort of like perpetual adolescence to the character. We see him wearing full sized adult pajamas and and still being treated by as a child by his parents, who he is now older than. Um, and uh, you know, it, he, and that works both ways. I mean, he, he can't love because he can't receive love, and he can't receive love because he can't love. And over the process of this movie, those two things, in ways that are deeply bittersweet, will resolve one another um, in what I find to be a very hopeful way. But Patches, you were talking about the location. Yes, the the apartment where he lives in that building is a studio um, because it needs to have a certain sort of like impersonal uh, uh, unreality to it. But the house where they shoot where Andrew Scott sure. grew up is Andrew Haig's actual childhood home. Wow, um, interior <laughs> and exterior. So um, and and cool. he hadn't been there in thirty years, uh, but clearly brought his own personal experience, um, particularly as a gay man growing up in the 80s when, um, you know, your well-meaning Thatcherite parents would say things like they don't want their kids to be gay because they are afraid for them. They're afraid for this disease that's going around. They're afraid they're going to be murdered. I mean, to some extent, uh, these fears are obviously still valid, but it was a much more um, it was a very different, very different way back then, uh, where there was sort of a lack of understanding as to how the gay people even could be happy. And he brought his own experience to bear on a story that had no gay overtones to it whatsoever, the original novel. Um, and this is a very loose adaptation that he has queered to his own experience. There is a funny conversation in the movie about the pros and cons of queer versus gay. Um, I, I thought, thought it was a funny. delightful conversation. Yeah, yeah it was really and, insightful. And I think Andrew, uh, Andrew Scott's character comes down on 
Which side does he come down on? He comes down like, on he can't say queer because he can't say queer. Yeah, because he's the only queer one was always how he was made right. fun of when he was yeah. a kid. Right, right, right. So he says, gay. and it's funny doing Q and As with him uh, for this movie. And Mescal's the reverse; it should be said. Right, like, he's a little younger, so he's like, I was called gay all the time. Like Andrew Scott stupid. would always, not always, but like as a rule, but he would often say queer uh, in our Q and As, which I thought was a funny. Oh, that's reversal. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's so there is a very sort of haunted personal feeling here and I, what I love and I'll stop talking about this we've already I've already had a whole segment of the show where I've proven that, that I can't really talk about this movie but the um what I love about these scenes where he goes back to visit his parents is that it's never just one thing it is a really deliberate reaction to and progressive step away from these necessary uh coming out dramas that we are accustomed to that are like very severe one way or the other it's like you know occasionally stories of acceptance but oftentimes you know get out of your i don't you're i don't have a son anymore like you don't live here um and what this movie is trying to do is sort of be a little bit more on the ground level and true to reality and how yes those extremes exist of course but a lot of the times i think and this is true to andrew hayes experience that conversation is going to be tinged with uh love and acceptance and disappointment and resentment and all of these things swirling around one another. And now you have these two temporalities collapsing down on each other. And you have Andrew Scott's character, you know, having this fantasy that so many people, gay or not, you know, if you've lost anyone in your life, little and a parent can imagine of like the chance to see them again. But he's also resentful towards the idea that he at 40 years old <clears throat> has to essentially explain who he is still to his parents of all people. And that tension is so clear and true for all these characters where, you know, that the conversation he has with Jamie Bell, which I think is the best scene in the, in the film and the most wrenching one and why I like cannot abide leaving Jamie Bell off of any list of accolades of who's so good in this movie. When, you know, that, that, that's so beautifully crystallized and the, like the idea that he heard him crying in his room, Jamie Bell heard his son crying in his room and he was growing up, but didn't want to go in, thought that that was the thing to do. Cause he didn't want, he was a, he wanted to raise like a masculine child who was strong enough to deal with these things and didn't want to feminize him. And, and Andrew Scott growing up feeling like he needed to hide from all the shame, but at the same time, so desperately wanted his father to come in and give him. Well, specifically he says he him. couldn't even tell him what was happening at school right. because he thought that his dad was the type of person who would be right. bullying him at school. And then his dad says, yeah, you're right. I would have yeah, been. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I was fucking bawling. <laughs> and like having that, and so much of what is so powerful about that movie is that thin layer of glass, you know, the thin lens that you have, like with a pair of goggles when you go swimming that can make the water that's swimming all around you so much more clear. That that knowledge that they're dead, because everyone in this movie knows, you know, like the, the, the parents know that they're dead immediately. It's just not really spoken. Um, it gives them a clarity that they would have been lacking really probably at any point in their lives. And it's the same clarity that you get when you do lose a loved one, when you can suddenly sort of see them for the first time in a way, because uh, you have that uh, iota of, of the distance. movie. Uh, the movie kind of reminds me, not l literally in story or or in form, but just the 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 specificity that Haig can bring to it while being universal reminds me of After Sun a little bit, and mm. maybe the Paul Mescal yeah. factor uh, sways me in that direction. But like, I'm a huge fan of of Haig and um, of Weekend and, and 45 years. I just, I 
loved, loved, loved that movie. But um, I was I was really he is the master of like couch conversation. I just love how much of this movie is just people chilling, having profound, huge milestone moments in their lives while they're just chatting on the couch, like hushed tones. It's such a quiet movie. You know, Katie and Dave, if you didn't respond to it, I it sounds like still the performances were kind of working for you. Like, is these yeah. or, or is that what yeah. is missing from it? Like, do you think or, I don't I don't know. I don't think anything David said is something that the movie failed to adequately explain to me. It just felt like somebody. It, it, I I appreciated the the scenes of dialogue that we had more um, towards the beginning of the film uh, because once things sort of start going uh, slightly more trippy post uh, ketamine dosage. Um, I really, it's, the movie has this illusion that it's expanding when really it's burrowing deeper into one character, and ultimately I felt that's where it ended, which I feel is fine, but I just felt like, the reason I wanted to categorize it as time travel is I think I wanted it to be more like Petite Maman than mm. what it ended up being, because the foreknowledge that these parents have and the realization that you know, it's not like a supernatural thing, maybe. It's, uh, you know, in his head and sort of manifesting. Still makes that a, an extension of him. And it, 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 feels, it feels like a really well-formed character taking me all the way through himself. And I'm not sure at the end if uh, the growth leap was enough for me to feel like I, you know... Really this movie is actually that. the uh, the end of AI. Um, Andrew Andrew uh, Scott is playing Haley Joel Osment. Should we yeah, talk about the ending? The Should we read the spoiler? Ring the spoiler gong and talk about the ending. <laughs> I can I mean, bring the spoiler you, gong. If you <laughs> think there's something to dig into, you seem like you really want to talk about. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't yeah. Think the I movie have... is out. People can see it. It's still, I think it's still in theaters. I think I just read it's just come out in the UK, which is a little surprising. But yeah, it's surprising. Um, UK yeah, release dates are weird. Um, yeah. So if we can ring the spoiler gong. I yeah. hate I hate the ending of this movie. Wow, I hate, I hate the, the twist so I, I know much. you're I know you're kind. Uh, you're terrible. People. He sees dead people. Yeah, I, halfway your, through the movie, I was like, oh yeah, I, I like it would be really annoying if he was like dead the whole time. But I guess they really would have like made that clear by then if that was going to be the case. And then it's like you walk into that room, you're like, oh come on, like. I just didn't need the movie to become more insular and more disconnected from the world and all inside this one mm. guy. It was such a disappointment but, to me. But I think that's a, uh, a not uncommon but fatal misreading of what's <laughs> happening at the ending. Uh, it, it is not, I would say, sure, it's going deeper into this one guy in a way, but it's also liberating him towards a more hopeful and open future. I mean, open. You think that's what be, happens? Yes. I mean, I. Uh, I do feel very strongly that he is, I mean, particularly the way you see him holding Paul Nestle's character at the end, finally able to sort of complete the circle, to have received love from someone and give it to them in return has sort of gotten him to a point where he can be open to the world. Because the insularity you're talking about, Katie, is what this movie is about. I mean, that locked off loneliness, that's, that's what this character is doing. Why, you know, why won't you let me in? This is the first word spoken in the movie, more or less, when you won't let into his apartment it's all about someone learning how to let people in um in a way that may be too late to save paul mescal's character but will serve him really well in the future i don't think that 
there's any other way this movie can end. Um, I don't think it would be true to the story if um, if Paul you know, Mescal's character wasn't a ghost. Yeah, if like one ghost didn't answer sort of another ghost and lay them all to rest. I mean, I think that you have to have uh, that regret. There has to be a consequence to his decision not to let Paul Mescal's character in figuratively and literally in the beginning of the movie um, and reach a point where I think he's prepared to be a different person and sort of accept the power of love as we end on the opening shot of the music video of that song. Um, moving forward. I think it's, it's like this ending is like what really, I mean, the scene in the diner when they're disappearing is obviously crushing, but this ending is really what would set me into overdrive. Mm, I had a different read on that ending, which is dude learns to love himself and mm-hmm. maybe that's enough. And, uh, that was unsatisfying to me, given what I'd seen in the movie, investing in what I thought were real characters. Um, but uh, I mean, are yeah. they not? I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to say that the characters, even if they're manifestations of a person having dimension and having the memories of people, these people we've lost in life, they're not fake because they don't exist. We're, we're thinking about them as real. Aren't these people still kind of they're not just extensions of him. They are. Mm hmm. Uh, reflections of the people who existed and himself. They are still characters. I, I feel like you're writing it knew, off a little bit. If he knew Paul he Mescal are... at all, then I would maybe give into that, but this is a character that was created to teach him to love himself by himself. Unknowingly? But they do have quite a spark. No, I gotta I, say, I, all I, the scenes do. where they're making out are I, like very physical and steamy in a way. I was like, Wow. Yes, yes, I'm very I, sad that those things didn't happen. Because I, I know those things happen. It makes it feel very crushing when you realize the extent of his loneliness. And I agree with David. <laughs> I think the point of the ending is that that he is ready to open him out, open himself up into the world. But it's really sad to get to the point where you know. Do you well, think that it's all I think been in his head? You have a, a broader resistance to the core concept of this film. Yeah, I think <laughs> you're right. Really, I'm, like, I'm not saying um, that's not my fault. You're now making me wonder if Andrew Scott's character had ever had a physical relationship with another man. Uh, and I'm trying to remember uh, if that's the same. Why, are, why are we trying to cast aspersions on his whole life before this? No. No, because well, of something no, that David said earlier where he yeah. is arrested development that he is no. kind of trapped in the past. And and if he's imagining himself in these kind of I very sexual experiences I, and this awakening that he's having, but he knows he's gay. I don't he, think it's like necessarily helpful or reasonable to think that he was like a virgin i think that yeah he's just it's a it's been a tortured process for him um and you know writing has sort of been the way that he's been able to tunnel his way out of it but um katie the only thing that is your fault is making me agree with patches about something and (laughs) putting us on the same side you know what you guys did that all all by yourselves if this movie wasn't for you it wasn't for you but uh i can i can tell you from for addressing the listeners now who I hopefully, I guess, are not listening to this particular part of our All the Strangers uh, episode or recap, but uh, let's say they were. This movie is for a lot of people. It's resonated with a, a cross-section of people that I know. I've seen, I've seen audiences react to it, um, and I thought it was as beautiful and extraordinarily composed and just, like, masterfully sort of tight and, and um, complete yeah. whole, whole would, thing as anything I saw last year. And I would I, never call it anywhere near bad. It is a no. very good film. Uh, but yeah, I just, it, it didn't get its hooks in me. So I was sitting back in awe of a production instead of leaning in to a story and, and a relationship. And a great soundtrack. 
can't deny it. I mean, did good, good soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> did he ever go to the club? Probably not, but good soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, he may have taken some ketamine just by himself. Good, just by himself. Just, yeah. you know, sad, why not? sad to think about. <laughs> um, I would tell people well, to see Elvis Strangers. I recognize it as it could be a, a thing that does not ring a chord in me, but clearly has rung in very many other people. But it was, uh, it was not. Um, I think Katie, if if something ever goes horribly wrong in your life and uh, you break irrevocably, uh, you should revisit this movie. You know what's a do. great movie about real people finding real connection? Uh, if together you say my is, show, I'm hanging up uh, right now. Andrew Hanks <laughs> Weekend. Just throwing that out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> real people. It's a, actual human beings and not concepts. And that uh, that were one out. This for is, me. but this is not a. Uh, this is not an inside out fucking like. The people are just concepts movie. I say, I take your point. I don't agree with it, but I take your point. But I, I I resent sort of stretching it that far. It would be like, you know, he's joy and she's anger. And we're going to no. get inside too this summer. I, I'm Ugh. not the one who brought up inside <laughs> out. That was you. I know. But yeah. that's, I can't eat when you <laughs> say like really you're, when you're conflating people too. with concepts, movie characters with concepts. I can't help but think about Pete Doctor because that is all he does. Um, anyway. two, coming to theaters. Ugh, God, don't tell Asa. Well, you know, what Actually, is theaters right that. now. What is it there's right now, all of us strangers? Uh, go check it out. Come up with your own opinions. If you're listening to this, we already told you the ending, so no. <laughs> that's coming. We're this maybe, the, maybe the secret to enjoying Inside Out is that it purely is an instructional video for four and five year olds, and it can uh, help you as a tool, like help them recognize their feelings. I, maybe honestly, honestly, I think with my five year old whose feelings are a little all over the place, we've been watching Inside Out recently. I think there's something going on in there. Like I, I'm with it. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I was just trying to look for something that's playing for kids in theaters, and the only thing is Wonka. Bleak. What about Migration? Still in theaters or not? I don't know. We've seen Mig- good We've seen both of them. It's fine. Oh, you have. You've seen it. Never mind. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is champagne problems, but take take it to all of us strangers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, okay. I thought all the those Pixar movies are coming to. Uh, I think like they Soul. came you and went. I think they already did that, oh. and then no, February has a different. February yeah. and March are both. Soul's like, gone. Red's coming. Uh, but February and March each have pre-releases. So I wonder the... what it would be like to try to convince them to go see Soul. In oh, the Tenet is coming back to theaters in February. Oh, you can take your kids to that. I want to go see Tenet in theaters. <laughs> All right. All of us strangers. Oh, you're a monster. I can swallow a bottle of alcohol in a feel like Godzilla. Better hit the deck like the cardilla. That does it for this week's show. I mentioned earlier that I watched Society of the Snow. I had forgotten that I uh, said we would watch it for next week's episode. Um, I, I sat I down and say, watched. I was going to say that on the podcast, but I didn't want to promise it. But now that you did, I wrote I'm it down in the stock, and I got to the bottom. I was like, "Oh, I guess that's why I decided to watch it." I thought I was just uh, doing it on a whim. So great, we're talking next week about Society of the Snow, Spain's international feature nominee, also nominated for best makeup. It is on Netflix, so everyone can watch. It tells it with the story us. of Coriolanus Snow. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's the story of the plane crash last seen in Alive. Oh, no, what? Uh, you didn't know that? <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, executive editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Blue Sky and Letterbox at Mr. Patches. We have a website, Fighting in the War Room. Dot com where I hope you can listen to old uh, Andrew Andrew Haig uh, movie interviews or movie interviews reviews. What time is it? Where am I? <laughs> Fightingalone.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the film critic for IndieWire. You can read all of my and my colleagues' Sundance coverage on IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at or X 
I had David Ehrlich and Letterboxd, David Ehrlich and Blue Sky, David Ehrlich on Instagram, David Ehrlich and all of us together on Fighting in the War on iTunes or podcast or whatever the fuck the thing's called. I'm fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your feelings. Write us a line a day diary entry mm. uh, every day for a year. Uh, whatever. We just want to connect with you guys. You know, we, we, we want to let you in. Or you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as DA70. You can find me on the Trial by Content podcast where this week I watched Little Man Tate for the first time. Wouldn't you know, so adorable. Uh, but yeah, and uh, send us an email about, uh, you know, anything. If you have fried rice recipes, if you have thoughts, if you have an international review for your show, we would love to hear from us. FITWR. We would love to hear from you. We hear from us all the time. FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I've never seen Little Man Tate, but uh, Adam Han Bird, who plays Little Man Tate, was my social psych TA in college. Oh. And we all found that very exciting. Uh, <laughs> he's also in Jumanji. Uh, I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair, as mentioned, on Little Gold Men, talking extensively about the Oscars. I will not be on a picket line again for a while, I think. I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. Um, you can find me on, I've been on Twitter more lately. I need to take it back off my phone. But in there, and on Blue Sky, and on Letterboxd at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we are all on Twitter and Blue Sky and not Letterboxd yet. Every week I keep thinking we should um, at F-I-T-W-R. Where uh, you can tell me which uh, random child stars you might have gone to college with, or you can answer this Ooh. week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of the beekeeper in theaters now, what's a profession you least expect to be filled by a highly trained operative? <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm not afraid to pull them. Man, stop. Look what I'm planning. <laughs> I'll tell you when I'm done. Wonder what you find. Pooba pooba. Wonder what you find. My fair lady. I'm done.